We're going to be doing uh, a series on Jesus in the Old Testament uh, this semester. And, um, you know, I know a lot of you guys are probably taking understanding the Bible or maybe you're taking Old Testament even this fall. That happens a lot around here. And when I think about the Old Testament, they're actually, um, you know, the issue that we're going to try and get at tonight really is how are we to understand the Old Testament? And who gets to help us see? Now, there's this old story, I think Rudyard Kipling first told it, about five blind men of India. Maybe you've heard this story. It's usually used as a story to advance what we call religious pluralism, which is the idea that nobody can have a corner of the market on truth. And so the story goes this way. There were five blind men of India who were walking down the road, and they come upon an elephant. And each of them touches a different part of the elephant, and thus each of them has a different understanding about what they've come upon. One of them uh, grabs one of the legs and thinks that they've run into a tree. Another comes up against the side of the elephant as he's going across the way and thinks that they've come up against the side of a house. Another one grabs a hold of the trunk and thinks, oh, there's a snake here, right? Now, the story is told by one who is wanting to say that don't tell me about Christianity or about the different religions, because all the world's religions each have an aspect of the truth, right? And it's an, actually an interesting story, because the question you should always ask when it's used that way is, what makes you able to see and makes you not one of the five blind men? In other words, it's a story that, in some ways, people use it to say none of the world religion should be arrogant and think that they know the truth, but of course the person telling the story is assuming a posture where they alone see, right? So it's kind of, uh, it's a little bit of a trick and it's not actually a very fair story. But I thought it was a good story to think about the Old Testament. Because one of the key issues is when you read the various stories in the Old Testament, the Old Testament is made up of 39 books from thousands of years apart. There are laws, there are songs, there are stories, there is poetry. It's all kinds of stuff. And what a lot of people do is they just kind of dip down in it and, and like read a little story and either they like it or they don't like it. Maybe some of you grew up in Sunday school where you hear different stories, maybe little kids' story Bibles where you're like, you should be like Daniel. Maybe there's, you've re heard that little song, Dare to Be a Daniel. Anybody ever sing that little song growing up? Yeah, it's a terrible song, um, <laughs> as we're going to see, I hope. But, but the big question is, how do you know how to read the Old Testament? Who will help us to see what's actually there? Just like the five blind men of India needed somebody to tell them what they've seen, the part, how does it fit into the whole? If you don't understand how the parts fit into the whole, you won't understand even the part that you're interacting with. And what I'm going to contend tonight is that Jesus claims to be the one to teach us how we're to read the Old Testament. Jesus is the one who will help us see what's actually there. He gives us the key to understanding the Old Testament. He actually says it's pretty important that we read it in the way that he says. But you may ask, does it really matter what Jesus thinks about this? Isn't it 
more proper to take the Old Testament on its own terms rather than letting the New Testament or the Christian church or even Jesus tell us how we're to understand the Old Testament. And you know what? If you have that question, that's not a new question. It actually is a question that goes all through the New Testament. Jesus actually gets in arguments with people about how to understand the Old Testament. What's interesting, though, when you look at Jesus' approach, he never quotes Scripture to start an argument. Whenever he quotes Scripture, it ends the argument. And thus you see something about how Jesus understood the Bible. Not to be the thing that begins the argument, but the thing that ends the argument. There's one point, one place where he makes an argument with the Pharisees about a single letter in, an, uh, in a very obscure psalm showing that every single letter mattered to him. That was his view of the Old Testament. But what I want to show us is a couple places where Jesus says, this is how you're to understand the Old Testament. And if you don't read it this way, you don't understand what it's actually talking about. Now, Jesus isn't the only one who does this. The Apostle Paul does this as well. But we're going to dig into what Jesus has to say. Um, now, you might ask, is this a historical approach, like I said, taking Jesus as the starting point. And here's what I would say. Sometimes, sometimes, arguing for a historical approach is a cover for an anti-supernatural bias. If Jesus is who he says he is, Christians take him to be the ultimate teacher. And if he's spoken about what the Bible is, and particularly what the Old Testament is, Christians believe that we should take that seriously, right? So let's see what he has to say. Here's the point I want to contend for tonight. We have a great treasure in the Old Testament, a great treasure. We have a beautiful Savior to behold in every page, as that song that we sung, Laden with Guilt, tells us. And we have a gracious God who, get this, doesn't just reveal truth in his word, but he actually helps us to understand it and helps us to understand how we are to read it. So what did Jesus teach about how to read the Old Testament? If you want to look here, the couple passages that we're going to look at, and if you've got that blue sheet, um, you'll see that. The first is this. Jesus was conscious of who he was from the very start. And from the very start, he's laying down the gauntlet for how you are to understand the Old Testament. You know this story maybe in Luke chapter 4. This is when Jesus begins his public ministry. Okay, He's been kind of operating, you know, living, but now he's going to basically come out publicly. Here's the beginning of his public ministry. What does he do? He goes to the town where he's from, Nazareth. He goes to the synagogue, and one of the things you would do at the synagogue is somebody would stand up and read a portion of the Old Testament. It's Jesus' turn to do this. He gets up and he reads. This is in Luke chapter 4. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. This is Isaiah 61, actually, if you want to know. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. To set the oppressed free. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So he reads Isaiah 61, those verses. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. 
The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Or some translations say, in your midst. Now that's a bold thing. It's a bold thing. This is the beginning of his public ministry. He finds the place in Isaiah, Isaiah 61. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, has four servant songs, they're called. And the Jews at the time of Jesus understood these servant songs to be speaking about the Messiah. So he reads from one of the servant songs and says, Today, this scripture, I have been anointed to proclaim freedom to the captives. This is fulfilled today in your midst. So right from the beginning, Jesus is saying, Isaiah 61, this servant song that speaks to the Messiah, it's talking about me. This is the fulfillment of it. Right here and now. Right? Jesus is the one who picks Isaiah 61. And after reading it, it says, today, this scripture is fulfilled. It's bold. But there's more. In John chapter 5, Jesus argues with people a lot. I don't know if you know this. I, when I was your age, I didn't think Jesus argued with people. I just thought he was this nice guy, right? And I remember going to a used bookstore one time around my senior year in college, and I found a book with this title, Christ the Controversialist. It's by a guy named John Stott, wonderful Christian teacher who's passed away now. But I never thought that Jesus argued with people so much that you could have an entire book of the arguments Jesus had with people. It's actually a really helpful way to get to know what Jesus cared about and what he was like. Because you don't usually argue with people uh, unless you actually care about what you're arguing about. Well, unless you're one of those people who just likes to argue for the sake of argument. But Jesus wasn't like that. Through the arguments of Jesus, you actually find out what he really cared about. And in John chapter 5, he's arguing with the, um, the Pharisees. And at one point, he begins to talk to them about Moses. Now, the importance of Moses for the Pharisees cannot be overestimated. Moses was the man. Whatever Moses said, that's what we want to do. That's what we want to be about. But Jesus says this in John chapter 5, verse 46. He says, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. There's two points to draw from this. One, you probably will hear in your Old Testament or understand the Bible class that a lot of scholars don't believe that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. All I can say is Jesus thought he did. And you should take that seriously, not dismiss it. There are arguments to be made for and against that view that Moses wrote the five books. If you want to get coffee, we can talk about those. But you do need to understand and you should know that Jesus regarded Mosaic authorship of the first five books what he believed. So that's the first point. But the second point is, you don't understand Moses if you don't understand that he's talking about me. That's what Jesus says. You can read the Old Testament law, but if you don't understand that Moses is writing about me, you don't understand it, and you don't believe Moses. That's what he tells the Jewish leaders who think that Moses is on their side. And Jesus says, he's not, because you don't understand the Old Testament. The reason I know you don't understand the Old Testament is you don't see it pointing to me. Again, that's strong. 
And we had, what are we going to do with that? But there's more. There's more. There's the road to Emmaus, the end of Luke's gospel in Luke 24. And I'll read this passage. We'll talk about this one a little more. In Luke 24, this is after Jesus has been crucified. It's after he's been resurrected. It's after the women have went to the tomb and found it empty. It's even after Peter uh, and, and some of the others ran to the tomb and saw that it was empty. And they've now reported this. And then two of the disciples, we don't know which ones. Um, well, we do later. They're, they're not two of the 12. They're, they're just two, two of the guys that were hanging around. Um, they're going down the road to Emmaus, and they're just kind of still bewildered by everything. They're bewildered by everything. And Jesus actually appears and is walking along beside them, but it says that they were kept from recognizing him. It's an intriguing little detail. We don't know exactly why, but they don't know it's Jesus, but they're kinda, he's kind of listening in on their conversation. And eventually, they, they're like, don't you, under, don't you know everything that's happened? He's like, why are you guys kind of depressed? And they're like, well, don't you understand? Don't you know? Are you the only one around here that doesn't know what's happened these last few days? We thought that Jesus was the Messiah, but he was crucified. Which for the Jews in that day meant that he couldn't be the Messiah because there was a passage in Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, part of the law of Moses, that said, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And in the Roman period, the Jews regarded that as a reference to crucifixion. Anybody crucified was shown to be cursed by God. Now, the Apostle Paul later in Galatians says, yes, that's true. But the key thing to understand is Jesus was cursed by God, but he was cursed in the place of those who deserved the curse. But these people, they don't understand what's going on, but they're like, we thought Jesus was going to be the Messiah, but he was crucified. And here's what Jesus says to them. How foolish you are. This is Luke 24, verse 25. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. It's like the greatest Bible study ever. Now, you should understand, in the Hebrew Bible, what we call the historical books, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, in the Hebrew Bible, do you know what those are called? The former prophets. Which is actually another important thing to understand about how the Jews and how Christians understand the historical books. They are God's word. They're the former prophets. So that means the whole Bible. When it says Moses and all the prophets, it means the major prophets. It means the 12, what we call the minor prophets. It means the historical books. How all of them pointed to Jesus. Verse 28, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us. For it's nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. 
Now that's really interesting. It disappeared from their site. Do you know, this is, one of the, this is the kind of stuff that makes me more confident in the trustworthiness of the New Testament. Because in the early centuries, there was this heresy, this false idea floating around that Jesus wasn't a real man, that he was kind of like a ghost. And you know, when that heresy was spreading, the New Testament didn't edit out all the stuff that those heretics were using to advance their ideas. Passages like this, Jesus just disappeared, were the kind of things that people said, oh, see, he wasn't a real man. That stuff doesn't get edited out of the Bible. That's important to understand. The stuff that would have been embarrassing. Uh, sometimes we call that the criteria of embarrassment. The embarrassing stuff that's embarrassing to the disciples, that's embarrassing to the early church, it's still in there. It doesn't get edited out. So he disappears. And then I love this. Then they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? I love that. Their hearts burned within them. They didn't just get some new trick of interpretation. Their eyes were opened, even as Mitch prayed, their eyes were opened to see Jesus as more beautiful and believable. And part of it was understanding how the suffering had been part of the plan. They didn't think the suffering made any sense. But you know, if you've ever read much of the, of the gospel accounts, you see the apostles were always trying to tell Jesus he didn't know what he was talking about when he told him that he was gonna have to go to Jerusalem and die. One point Peter even says, no! And Jesus, you remember what he says to him, to one of his best friends? Get behind me, Satan. Right? Jesus knew what he needed to do because he believed the scriptures and the scriptures laid out what he was to be about. All right? So Jesus is the whole point of the Bible. And I hope you see he teaches this explicitly at the beginning of his ministry, after his resurrection, in the middle of his ministry, arguing with the Pharisees, over and over and over again, Jesus says, if you don't see the Old Testament as pointing to me, you don't actually understand what it's about. And again, this isn't just a cool way to look at the Bible. It's the way Jesus says it should be read. So what do we learn from Jesus' teaching about the Bible? A couple applications for this idea. The first is that the Bible has a storyline. And it's this storyline that gives context to all the other stories. In other words, you have to see the big picture story that all of the smaller stories fit into. The Old Testament is God's gracious, inerrant, infallible revelation of himself to his people through his telling of the story of redemptive history and what it means. It isn't just a story about things that happened. It's God's interpretation of what they mean. Now, I know there's a textbook that's used at a certain university, Belmont, that, um, <laughs> that says this, that the Old Testament is a record of what God did and what men thought about it. I will tell you, the Bible says otherwise. The Bible claims to be a record of what God did and what God says it means. And that's a very different thing. It's a very different thing. And that's the crucial issue of what we call epistemology. How do you know what you knew? You're, a lot of you are taking freshman seminar. If you're not taking it, you already took it. That's a class where you have to wrestle with. How do I know what I know? 
Christians start with, what did Jesus say? What did Jesus teach us? That's a good starting point. There's a storyline, a storyline. The storyline actually, you know, in some ways, the programmatic verse for the whole Old Testament, you know what it is? It's Genesis 3, verse 15. It's in the curse that is pronounced upon the woman. And actually, in the curse pronounced upon the woman, there is a gracious promise. God says, I will put enmity between your seed and the seed of the serpent. And that's actually a gracious promise because Adam and Eve had allied themselves with Satan against God. And God says, I won't allow that to stand. By my sovereign grace, I will break that alliance and I will put warfare where you tried to put peace. The seed of the serpent will strike the heel of the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman will crush his head. And guys, the rest of the Old Testament, the rest of the drama of the Old Testament hangs on whether God will keep that promise. And it it actually helps unpack all of the other stories. Listen, there are two great threats to that promise being able to be kept. Do you know what they are? The one is the external enemies that aren't just out to, to wipe out Israel. They're out to wipe out the seed line of the Messiah. And the other is God's people and their own unbelief. And you could argue that God's people and their own unbelief is actually the more challenging and the greater threat to that promise being kept. Over and over again, God has every right to say, that's it. You see it in Genesis chapter 6 in the story with Noah. God looked at the heart of man and he saw that his only inclination was only evil all the time. And yet still he saves one family. And through that one family, the seed line of the Messiah is preserved. The story of Ruth is in the Bible. Do you know why? It's not just a cool story about a kinsman redeemer. It's actually Ruth is David's great-grandmother. And it's a story about how even in a time of famine, God is going to preserve the seed line of the Messiah so that one day all the nations can be blessed. That's what we're going to look at that you can understand the storyline that all the stories fit into. Ed Clowney, you may not know Ed Clowney's name, he's passed away now, but he was a um, mentor to a guy named Tim Keller, maybe some of y'all have heard of. He said this in, in his book on the Old Testament, he says, there are great stories in the Bible, but it's possible to know Bible stories yet miss the Bible story. The Bible has a storyline. It traces an unfolding drama. The story follows the history of Israel, But it does not begin there, nor does it contain what you would expect in a national history. If we forget the storyline, we cut the heart out of the Bible. Sunday school stories are then told as tamer versions of the Sunday comics, where Samson substitutes for Superman. David becomes a Hebrew version of Jack the Giant Killer. No, David is not a brave little boy who isn't afraid of the big bad giant. He is the Lord's anointed. And if you look at the story, actually in 1 Samuel, there are more verses devoted to what David says than to what he does. 
but almost everybody just knows what he did. But what he says is, the Lord who delivered me from lions and bears will deliver me from this Philistine. What David wants you to understand is that the Lord is the hero of the story. And it's told that way, but that's not how we get told these stories. Second thing is there's true beauty to be seen when you see the big picture and how the stories fit together. It's not just that you begin to understand how they fit together, but there's beauty when you see this. Sally Lloyd-Jones, maybe some of you know her book, The Jesus Storybook Bible. Actually, for many years, we've done this as our freshman Bible study. We're doing something different this year since we're doing Jesus in the Old Testament for large groups, so we're not going to do that as well for the freshman studies. But the intro to this book is amazing. Listen to this. She says, now some people think the Bible is a book of rules, telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best, but the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the book, Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but as you'll soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away. At times, they're downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the ones he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there's a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He's like the missing piece in the puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together, and suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. I want you not just to understand the Old Testament, I want you to see the beauty and have it take your breath away. Now, a couple implications of that. We have to overcome our kind of modernist assumptions that stories can't really communicate truth, because they really do. We have to deal with cultural distance too, though. Some of these stories are weird. Believe me, like you're gonna read, if, if you've never read the whole Old Testament, when you take, understand the Bible or Old Testament, you'll read some stories that are, are terrible, but they're supposed to freak you out. They're not all nice little stories because this isn't a nice, safe world, right? We also have to be aware of the moralistic way that a lot of these Bible stories are taught, especially in children's Bibles, right? The Bible is not generally a collection of good and bad examples for us to follow. Even the good examples have major flaws. And the problem is, you know, when you read that Bible that way, as basically examples for you to follow or not follow, you actually really miss the point. Because the last point I want to make, reading the Bible in a Christ-centered way, what we're going to be doing this semester, is the key to growing from reading the Bible. Because faith feeds on the promises of God. And the Old Testament is full of the promises of God. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul tells the Corinthians, as many promises as God has made, and he's talking about the Old Testament, there's a lot of promises there, as many promises as God has made, Paul tells the Corinthians, they are all 
yea and amen in Christ. So we want to know about those promises. Here's the way Tim Keller puts it. Not only do we have to read the Bible Christocentrically as being about Christ, to understand its meaning, we must read it Christocentrically in order to grow from it personally. Listen to this. There is, in the end, only two ways to read the Bible. Is it basically about me or is it basically about Jesus? In other words, is it basically about what I must do or is it basically about what he has done? Until I see that Jesus fought the real giants, sin, law, and death, for me, I'll never be able to fight giants in life. Unless I see that Jesus made the big sacrifices for me, I'll never be able to make the normal sacrifices of life. Unless I can see him forgiving me on the cross, I won't be able to forgive others. Unless I see him as forgiving me for falling asleep on him, I won't be able to stay awake from him. As a model, Jesus and the rest of the Bible is a crushing, terrible burden. So reading Christocentrically is not just a trick of interpretation, but key to new life. Now, you know what is so ironic about that? When I first started working at Belmont 25 years ago, do you know what the statement of faith was? Jesus is the model for personal behavior. No, no, sorry, it was a little more than that. It said, we believe Jesus is the Christ and the model for personal behavior. That's what Tim Keller says will give you a crushing burden. There was nothing about him being the savior for moral failure. We believe it's the Christ and he's the model for how we should live. I hope you'll come to understand that Jesus is so much more than that. So much more than that. Because you see, sometimes you have a treasure and you don't even know what it is or why it matters. And that's why I think it's so beautiful that Jesus, not only has he given us this treasure, but he tells us what it is and why it matters. I got a treasure. I have this old hymnal. Did you see me? Uh, I posted this on our Instagram. Did anybody know why this, this book is special? Now, you might look at this and say, oh, this is, that's kind of an old book. It is. It's from the late 1800s. But honestly, you can buy a book like this on eBay for five or ten bucks any day that you want. But what's special about this book is in the inside. In the inside, it says, November 6, 1892, Sam Jones. Now, you don't know what a treasure this is because you don't know who Sam Jones is. I don't think. Do you? Does anybody know? Do you know that this hymnal used to be in a display case at the Ryman Auditorium? Until they wanted to have a Toby Keith exhibit, so they gave it back to me. <laughs> they didn't know what a treasure it was either. Actually, they did, and they didn't value it. Sam Jones was the guy they built the Ryman for. November 6, 1892, was the day that he preached at the Ryman Auditorium when it was still called the Union Gospel Tabernacle. And he signed this hymnal for these people there. I found it in an antique store for $7.50. Because I knew who Sam Jones was. Because I, I, you know, I teach hymnology and I knew about this, right? The Ryman had this in their display case. And they called me up and said, come back and get it. I'm like, okay, I will. I wonder what kind of treasure we have. I would submit to you that one of the greatest treasures you have is the Old Testament. Yet most people, if you look at their Bible and you turn it sideways, you can always tell which part they've read. Two-thirds of the Bible are rarely read or understood by Christians. 
Maybe you dip down in the Psalms a little bit, but if you look at your Bible, even a Bible that you've used a lot, most of them, they're really clean on those first two-thirds, and then they're really kind of brownish from use in the New Testament. That's a shame, because some of the most beautiful pictures of God's faithfulness and his care are in the Old Testament. And I hope that you'll come to understand that. Listen, in RUF, we want you to understand three things. We want you to know how you can be made right with God. That's what's called justification by faith. We want you to understand how to grow, how to become more like Jesus. And we want you to understand the scripture, how to read it, what it is, why it matters. We can't teach you everything in four years, but I think that if you can get those basic things, it really gives you a foundation to continue to learn and continue to, to wrestle with God for the rest of your life. So thanks for coming out tonight. I hope you'll, uh, you'll stick around with us as we dig into some of these stories. And um, I hope that tonight you'll eat some cake. We'll be back in the fellowship hall there. But first, you know, I didn't put this on the announcement sheet, but what we always end with is the doxology. And I know some of y'all may not know that, so don't be embarrassed by that. But those that do, stand, and we're going to sing the doxology. And next week I'll put it on the, uh, on the sheet.